Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Macris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport and the media. Welcome to this Full and Frank podcast for Acris Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson and I'm joined by my good friend, City veteran David Buick. Hello, David. Good morning to you, Michael. And we're very pleased to welcome our special guest this morning who distinguishes herself with forthright, knowledgeable and often out of the box financial commentary. I think we're talking about Helen Thomas and she's the founder of Blonde Money. Helen, welcome to the podcast. So when you were at school and so on, was this what you wanted to do? Well, hello and lovely to be talking to you chaps as ever. I have to tell you I absolutely loved both politics and financial markets from a very young age which I you it it makes me sound like a complete lunatic I completely understand but I was the I was the weirdo that not only did I like making sure I watched the 10 o'clock news but I wanted to do the bit at the end when they talked about you know this these weird financial markets I was constantly asking my parents what does that mean so yeah I sadly I do love it and and so you the the next record really after you is is becoming a, a sort of financial advisor with George Osborne what was what was all that about how did how did you manage to do that because you was it was that a was that a parliamentary thing or a treasury So uh, I went on to do politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford, uh, as I suppose we heard quite a lot about PPE over the years, takes on a new meaning these days. If you will, I actually thought I wanted to be the first female chancellor. That was that was, I think, my ambition as a teenager. So I always had an eye on politics, but I always worked in the city as well. I was a fund manager. But during the banking crisis, Osborne's team were looking for people who understood banking. And uh, that's that's where I went. It was actually when he was in opposition. So when, when Lehman went under 2008, um, I was going into Parliament. And uh, it was obviously, as you might imagine, quite a lot of mayhem, but absolutely fascinating time to be looking at uh, the politics and economics of banking. Did you feel at the time that politicians actually knew what was going on? Because I was I was I was commentating on it at the time, 2008, 2009 for Sky. And I, I do remember there was a critical meeting in September. I think it was 2008. And, and the thought at that meeting was, I don't care what we say. We need to say something when the markets open. Was that your view of it? I certainly saw myself as something of a translator between the two worlds. I spent a lot of time explaining what actually both sides did to the other. You know, if you think about it, um, if you remember that famous Peter Mandelson line about they're being intensely relaxed about uh, people in the city getting rich. I think for a decade or longer, the city and Westminster had kind of gone their own happy parallel paths happy for each to do what they want to do, but not really actually talking to each other that much. So when it all came to a head like that, there was actually a lot of education that needed to go on. I think both sides as well, you know, I think actually markets had panics about what on earth the politicians were saying, not understanding why they were saying certain things. Before we move on to blonde money and its evolution, I assume that you got to know James Sassoon and Rupert Harrison pretty well then. Obviously, uh, going to the other side of the front, Paul Miners, I thought, actually made a great contribution to the debate at the time. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, after working with Osborne, I went to work at Policy Exchange and uh, uh, created this thing called a Financial Markets Reform Programme. We actually got a lot of speakers to come in. And again, it was it was kind of the education process of what had happened. I remember distinctly we had I'd organised a presentation from Hector Sants, if you remember him. I'm sure the listeners will. was head of the FSA at the time. And his hands were shaking as he went up to the lectern to to explain what had gone on in the regulatory side of things, because obviously there had been a lot of issues. 
And it was then it really struck me, um, my goodness, even people who are very allegedly powerful, um, you know, struggle, of course, to deal with uh, with the huge events that go on. Did you, I mean, before that, was James Sassoon and Rupert, were they there at the same they were, time? were, yes, I, I, I do. I do yeah. know them and I've talked to Rupert from time to time. Might well indeed, uh, well, actually, I was quite pleased to see his, um, he gave, a, at the moment, the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee are doing a, inquiry into quantitative easing by the way which is I think fascinating and Rupert came to give, ev- give evidence on that while money gave a written evidence as well um I think it's important actually that people who have worked in the political yeah, sphere are involved in um what's happening in finance you can't keep the two worlds apart on the question of blonde money which obviously you established why does it bring a cutting edge to economic and political political advisory services? I mean, obviously, your ability to combine economics and politics in a constructive format is extremely attractive. Has the service been well received? Yes, absolutely. We have had both institutional investors involved, but we do get a lot of individuals, high net worth. Actually, I'm fascinated by the people who come to me who run their own business. They're not necessarily... Uh, markets or economic specialists but they know obviously they have to keep on top of all of this you know whatever business you're running I mean I think of it often about how if I take a small diversion and tell you uh what we're doing is navigating the road ahead we're telling you what to look out for what to monitor for these risks these unpriced risks that are not well understood and I think of it like um, the Titanic and how that went wrong. So there's lots of theories as to why, but it turns out a lot of the problems of the Titanic, it was down to, could you believe this, the key that opened the box with the binoculars in it, they didn't bring it on board the ship. They were so excited to launch this huge, brilliant, wonderful, unsinkable ship. Nobody thought about that key that opened the box with the binoculars in it. And that's what I think that we're doing at Bond Money. We are making sure you've got that key so you can look at the horizon, pick up on those risks uh, that you may not have seen because you're just getting on with your day job. Um, and that is indeed why people seem to have found it you know, very valuable. What, what, what's your feeling about where we are right now? I mean, we'll come. I know David wants to ask you about China and, and more glo- the global political things and so on. But, but just generally speaking, we are where we are with Brexit now, aren't we? Is it working out, do you think? I know there have been teething problems, but if you look at the figures, exports are up and all the rest of it. You know, people seem small businesses, SMEs seem to be coming to terms with red tape and so on. What's your, what's your feeling about it right now? Are you pleased that we're cast adrift? I don't take a personal opinion on any of this i mean i should stress that our one of our strengths at blonde money is we have we have an advisory board that has brexiteers remainers tories labor lib dems etc so you know there's there's no when it comes to financial markets looking at this you've got to be politically agnostic of course and um, now having said all of that there is actually an opportunity from Brexit. Um, I, I actually run my own podcast and we had Mohammed Elerian on as a guest. And I'm going to borrow his expression because he said in a in a the pandemic actually came at the right time for post-Brexit Britain because it's redrawing the trade lines globally. It's actually an opportunity for all these new supply chains to become more efficient. So in a funny way, Britain got a head start, a bit of a messy one that we there's difficulties. <laughs> But if, if if it's got the right leadership, and I think that's the important part, you've got the right leadership, you could take advantage of that. 
You've um, you've explained that very well. But now the whole thing that Brexit has taken place that leaves, in my opinion, and I may be looking for trouble, the European Union is slightly in a little bit of a bind. I mean, Angela Merkel is due to head off to the hills mm. and her successor may not have exactly the same ideas on what should happen, the relationship that Germany's had with Russia and with China. And I think it actually leaves the European Union, maybe temporarily, in a little bit of a quandary. Do you agree? And can you explain exactly what's going to happen, Helen, please? Yeah, I, I think Germany is one of the biggest unpriced risks out there that people really need to keep focused on this now. This is an absolutely critical moment for Germany, which means it's a critical moment for Europe. Now, we all know uh, that Europe was struggling a bit with growth anyway prior to the pandemic, demographics against it, sclerotic bureaucracy, etc. And then this comes along, the pandemic comes along, and that's a new challenge. But what we have to look at here is, you know, we've all got used to Angela Merkel. Uh, She's been around a very long time. She's the one at the summits in the end, knocking heads together, getting it all sorted out with France. It may be a bit of friction, but it gets there. She is now off the stage and um, it's actually very unclear who's going to uh, take over from her uh, because the polls are very tight in Germany. The rise of the Green Party is quite astonishing. Big federal election in September. We're going to have a leadership crisis and a, a real concern over the future direction of Germany and therefore Europe. And at the moment, I just don't see enough people talking about that. No, I mean, I think that's probably right. And also, does Macron see his way as assuming the helm as the leader for the European Union at the moment? I mean, France is not without its problems. And, uh, you know, we, we're in a, yeah. not in a particularly good relationship with them either. Well, I, I think, you know, with France as well, he, he, Macron's got his own big election coming up six months after the German one. So if I stand here and say to you, in the next less than 12 months, we've got potentially the whole new leadership at the heart of Europe, that that, that would be a difficult position uh, in the best of times. But actually, you know, we've got this, we've got the pandemic, we've got uh, just this, this sort of paradigm shift going on in the global economy. So I think, you're, again, it's an opportunity. Europe can well emerge from it stronger, but I think we're going to have to go through the wobble first. Do you believe in Easternization? I mean, we know what happens with China. We know it is the manufacturing centre of the world and all that kind of stuff. We know it's growing. It is, however, a weird setup. It's got capitalism around the outside and communism and all these kind of things. It's also got an ageing population and they're worried about that. They sat on those census figures for a long time, didn't they? Now, <laughs> so, here's, so here's, here's the thing. What do you feel about China? I mean, it, it looks like the wolf warriors in China have slightly taken a bit of a back a back step at the moment. We've got a new president in the United States. Now, there's a mix for you. What's your feeling? Right. Well, long term, we all knew China was on the rise. It is on track to be you know, the world's largest economy. It's putting its feelers out there. It's spreading its influence. But the geopolitics of this is uh, it will face... Uh, a balance on the other side, obviously from America. I think it's really interesting that Biden's administration has continued to keep on some of what Trump put in there that that is a bit more antagonistic towards China. So we are once again in that world of, you know, who are you with, who are you with and who are you against? And this actually, again, is where Germany is is very important because um, the leader of the CDU party, Angela Merkel's party, tends to be a bit more... uh, 
positives for the likes of Russia and China. But the leader of the Green Party, who are in this resurgent position, uh, she has taken a much more uh, Atlanticist, pro-NATO, pro-US stance. So if you look at it, you've got obviously America one side, China on the other. If Europe, where Europe flips on that, if Germany does edge more greenwards and more towards Biden, that could be quite a challenge to China and may well sort of force everyone else to be clear on what side they're on. Because some nations try and face both ways, don't they? Um, Kind of understandably because of the economics of it. Mm. But I think we're, again, at quite a critical point here on how serious a threat is China to the stability of of the global geopolitics. And uh, that's something we're going to find out in the next decade. Mike was quite right to raise China immediately. I mean, let's let's be frank. China, in my opinion, is probably going to usurp uh, the United States as the biggest economy perhaps in the next 20 years. Mm. It seems inevitable to me. The size of the country, the size of the number of people, the influence it has. I mean, it's got more than a foothold in Africa. It's getting a foothold in South America. It is becoming, in my humble opinion, dangerously powerful. I mean, this is, you know, what the rest of the world has to think. I mean, all this business of, you know, talking about human rights and how badly the Chinese are behaving. I'm sorry, but in the grand scheme of things, that that's a peripheral problem that the rest of the world is going to have to get over if they want to do business with China or be involved with. Because China, it's fallen on deaf ears. I think, though, with China, what we have to look at is how they want to present themselves uh, globally and what really is Xi Jinping's ambition. You know, it's all very murky in the world of Chinese geopolitics, but there's an awful lot that happens domestically. It's what I guess I mean by that is I don't actually think he wants to be king of the world. Just think that they want to have a secure, solid, strong economy and have political partners. But I don't think that they are quite so I don't think they're aggressive and acquisitive in, in perhaps, you know, what we've seen in leadership probably 100 years ago, where 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 you had to conquer territory to win. These days, you just have to conquer technology. And obviously, China is doing an awful lot on that front. And I just think that they will kind of slowly but surely continue on that front. But I don't think they want to actually kill off their main consumers, which, of course, is America. One more question I do think is important is that we know how threatening Russia is as a political force. Um, And in my opinion, they're probably stronger now than they've been for a very, very long time. But the economy, I think he's being economical with the truth, Putin. I would suggest that it's near enough in rags. How do you think the fact that the economy is so vulnerable, Helen, is that why that he's really flexing his muscles and showing the rest of the world how powerful he is politically? That's always the trade-off, isn't it? It's uh, If it's not going well on one front, the economic front, yes, try and flex your muscles on the political front. But, I mean, uh, I was struck few years ago by a speech that uh, Malcolm Rifkin gave, actually, um, talking about Russia and talking about Putin and his real ambitions. And again, it is this idea of Russia must be strong. Therefore, as you say, it must be either economically or if that's not working out, grab a bit of territory and uh, look very strong on that front. But again, they know they can't really afford to go too far and frankly, piss off the Americans and everybody else and end up with um, a ton of uh, 
frankly, weapons pointed at their heads. So for all of uh, Putin's aggression, he's, it, it, his goal is really his own longevity. So that is is all that he cares about. And he's managing to do that left, right and centre by changing all the rules to make sure he can actually stay in power. And I think, you know, the brand of modern dictator is is somewhat different to that of the past. I think they want to amass power, riches, resources, but they don't actually want too much trouble. Come on, the world is changing. We've done all that. We've done the geopolitical stuff. Back home, work patterns are changing and so on. What, 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 are, the, what are the impacts on things like, for example, the property market, which everybody in this country cares about? The world has changed overnight with this pandemic and it's not going back. You know, I fervently believe we're in the different normal. Now, for property, that we've already seen phase one of this, uh, which is, of course, uh, people needing more space wanting outside areas. Uh, we've already seen a lot of people leaving London. I don't think it's the end of London. London, as we all know, has thrived for centuries. It's not going to disappear overnight. But there is quite a significant rebalancing going on. I think the UK, we should be looking at America um, for uh, a signal of where we're going. Because the great thing about America, and part of the reason it's so successful, it's a very flexible economy. If you're fed up in the rat race in New York, you just up sticks and you go and buy something in Miami, you get twice the space, half the price, nice sunshine. And you can, at the moment now you can work from wherever. And they've, and they've done it in the, in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. You will have read the stories about people in America were just buying properties without even seeing them, just getting out there and doing it. A um, little bit of that has gone in the UK. I just think we're going to see uh, even more of it. And in, a, in an ironic sort of way, we'll end up with uh, everyone has banged on for years about the dominance of the southeast. And now that is starting to, to reverse course. So, you know, I think all of us have northern roots, I believe. Do we not? Certainly, I know myself and Michael and David's nodding. So we all have northern roots. We were all drawn to the, the big lights, of the big city. But perhaps in the future, Manchester, Leeds, uh, if not Devon, Cornwall, who knows? But you don't necessarily have to be in London all the time uh, to to gain the great success that many people want. So, in other words, you're you're thinking that property in London will be more affordable? Do you think? Because I mean, it doesn't look like it is at the moment. Well, will, will, no. the rental, will, will will the rental market take up the slack? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? So, I think what's going to happen is that it's about the offices as well. So, as we all know, huge amount of office space has been built over the last few years. Frankly, a lot of it is going to be redundant. I could well imagine a situation where those offices get turned into studio flats or four bedroom flats and all the graduates then come in. And what, wouldn't it be brilliant to live and work in the heart city and walk to work, you know, see their mates, got bars and restaurants around there, you know, boring old people like us. <laughs> well, well, we will, you know, um, hot foot it out to the hills if we haven't already. So I think that We've seen the first stage of this, which is that there's been a surge in demand, but supply hasn't quite met it, so prices have gone up. Then we'll get a phase where a lot more supply comes on board. Price rules will calm down, if not fall. And then it will be a reworking of the real estate that already exists. And actually, at the end of the day, we've all been worrying for a long time that first-time buyers can't get their foot on the ladder. Well, who knows? They're going to be apartments in the Gherkin or something 10 years from now. Let's go back, if we may, just developing Michael's variation on a theme to, to the United States. I mean, you talked about the exodus from New York to Florida. And if I'm right, in a conversation we had previously, you had 
the exodus from San Francisco and Los Angeles to places like Montana. Now, the reason for me mentioning this is you, I think, are of the opinion that whereby most economists are economists are really pretty frothed up about the resurgence of growth. You might, in the old-fashioned French, say, say, prenegade, because it's the old tanker syndrome, is you don't go from A to B in one fell swoop, takes a long time. And you're saying that the change, or correct me if I'm not putting money words into your mouth, the change from what we've had into what we will have will actually possibly affect growth in the course of the next three to five years. Oh, absolutely. So. My thesis on this has always been very clear, which is we had an overnight revolution that was going to lead to complete supply and demand imbalances. um, And it would take years, years to work this out. This is not a normal economic cycle. I know everyone wants to look at boom and bust and they measure things like inflation and unemployment to do it. But it's I always think of it like this. It's like um, somebody's had a heart attack. And okay, you could go out and measure how quickly they can do a 10 kilometer run. And that's a bit like measuring inflation. It's sort of interesting, but it's not the most interesting thing about someone having a heart attack is how do they live their life afterwards? Some of them do go back to how they lived before. Lots of people completely change their way of life, but it's just not the same as it was before. So that shock to the system is inefficient and that will reduce growth for a long time to come. I think we're going to end up somewhere a lot better. It's not all doom and gloom, but but we cannot possibly say that we are in the foothills of some amazing long-term recovery, because frankly, we are in a decade of adjustment. Yeah, I think that's right. Can I just ask one more thing? Is the situation with the City of London, Yeah. um, there are doomsters and gloomsters, and there are those like me who think, yes, we'll lose business because of the European Union, but at the end of the day, the infrastructure that we have here in this kind of, in the city is very very strong and anybody who thinks that uh, frankfurt amsterdam or paris is an automatic um, how can i put it competitor for london in the fullest sense of the word i think is misguided well i think it's been talked about a lot over the years the potential downfall of london i, I refer back to the history People have always wanted to live and work here. And it isn't just the business, of course. You know, it's the culture. It's the education. It's the language. It's the time zone. It's the international connections. I, be, I mean that in terms of flights, but I mean it in terms of the community that you mix with, etc. I don't think that is going ever to go away. However, there are, you know, London is being buffeted by a number of different challenges at once. Um and it will weather through it. I think what, what we should really more be thinking about these days is what economy do you want to be? Because, as I said, we're in a different normal. And in the different normal, you know, my phrase for this is an impaired velocity of people. We all can do things more virtually. Might not always like it, but we can. And many more will. And the younger generation are much more used to it than all of us. And that's great. Um, but it, it, it sets free the global workforce in many respects. So it's a funny world we're now in where, where we're sort of released from our uh, national barriers at the same time as borders are physically going up everywhere. So that's what I mean about that inefficiency. And it will resolve itself. Um, and to take advantage of that as an economy, you either have to say, right, well, we're going to be the producers of this technology, perhaps, or we're going to be the users of it. We're going to be doing huge 
financial services deals. You're not going to get better skilled people, I think, than, than there's so many of them in London. So it'll be about that. It'll be about, you know, a new competitive advantage. That's how economic works. Um, that's uh, how uh, we, will, we will find a new equilibrium. Some economies are going to be producing this new technology. Some are going to be using it. Um, and as I say, we go through a period of inefficiency and lower growth till we figure that out. But for the geeks like me, we're going through this brilliant real-time equilibration process, and it's absolutely fascinating. What about um, the overall situation, whereas I believe that the European Union and the British government towards each other in regard to financial services have been behaving like grown-up schoolboys, or not very grown-up schoolboys, a bit of head-banging together and realising, listen, guys, we've actually couldn't do an awful lot if we work together. I th- look, I mean... When it comes to politics, there's a lot of show that goes on, obviously, because actually in politics, you have to win the argument. Actually, this was why in the end I didn't want to work in politics. I preferred looking at financial markets. Financial markets are about what works. Politics is about what sells. That means we're going to keep having these arguments banging heads together. But in the end, because you're talking about financial markets and the regulations therein, they will come through to some sort of pragmatic conclusion. I'm sure of that. Lovely, Helen. Absolutely wonderful. Michael? Uh, that, that was a, a, a delight to have you on. Thank you very much indeed. That was the, lo- lots of things. I have been shamelessly writing down little notes as you were talking as well to keep, to keep it going. Very nice to talk to you, Helen. Thank you so much. Lovely to see and talk to you guys too. Michael, and thank you for your great company today. Helen, you've been a wonderful guest and thank you very much indeed. Thank you. 